Let's just pray again before we open our Bibles. Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that you will help us to understand it. Give us the concentration we need to listen to what you are saying through your word. We pray that you will help us to see Jesus, your son, as he really is. Amen. We often call Jesus the king. We sing about him being the king. When Jesus was born, he was announced to be the king. But what kind of king is he? Is he, for example, like our queen? A figurehead, a symbolic leader with not any real power? Or is he a dictator? Someone who exercises harsh control? He doesn't listen to anyone. He has no concern for his people. Or is he somewhere in between, a bit like our Prime Minister? Someone who has a certain amount of power, but is basically at the mercy of the people. So our Prime Minister can plan and he can present policies, but unless he gets the support of the people and the support of his fellow MPs, he can't implement his plans. In our passage this morning, we find that Jesus is different from all three of those examples. Our passage teaches us five truths about the king that we've met here to worship. We learn that Jesus the king is in control. He will be praised. He weeps over rebellion and its consequences. He works for his father's honor. And he causes division. Turn with me then, please, to Luke chapter 19. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1054. Luke chapter 19. We're going to pick up at verse 28, where we left off last week, just after where we left off. So we're picking up just after the parable of the servants with their minas, if you were here last week. Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is God's word. The first thing we learn in this passage is that Jesus the King is in control. Jesus has already told his disciples several times that he must go to Jerusalem and die. And now he's been on his way to Jerusalem for some time. Here we see that he's actually directing the events that will lead to his own death. He's not being passively overtaken by his enemies. He's in control. The passage starts with Jesus about a mile outside Jerusalem. He has traveled from Jericho, and now he and his disciples are either at or near to the Mount of Olives. That's on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 29 says, He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. There's no indication that Jesus set this up ahead of time. As it's presented to us, Jesus knows that the next village has what he wants. He sends two of his disciples with his authority to get what he wants. If they're challenged, they're to say the Lord needs it. And sure enough, verse 32 tells us the disciples found it just as he had told them. And they are challenged by the owners of the colt. Literally, the text says, the lords of the colt. The disciples who are challenged by these lords reply that the Lord needs it. So in the original, there's a play on words. The claim of the Lord takes precedence over the claims of the lords, the owners of the cult. So what are we being shown here? We're being shown that Jesus is in control. He has total knowledge of this situation. Before he arrives, he knows where the cult is. And he also has total authority in this situation. So yes, in one sense, these people in the village own the cult. But the real owner is Jesus. This is a little illustration of what the Apostle Paul means when he says in Colossians, all things were created by him and for him. 
Jesus the King has ultimate ownership rights over all things. They're his. It's one thing to have knowledge. It's another thing to have the power to benefit from your knowledge. Jesus has both. He knows where the colt is, and he's able to get it. At this point, we might be saying, well, okay, I see the point about Jesus' knowledge and his power. But why make such a big deal about a colt? The text uses the word four times in five verses. Why put so much emphasis on a baby donkey? Why is the stress on Jesus' control matched by an equal stress on his choice of transport? And the question becomes more significant when we realize that Jesus doesn't actually need this donkey to get to Jerusalem. Jericho is 18 miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus has just walked 17 of those miles. He could manage the last mile on foot if he wanted to. So he's choosing to ride the last mile on a donkey because he wants to make some kind of statement. That's the sense in which he needs this donkey. His arrival in Jerusalem is going to make a statement about the kind of king that he is. He's a king who is fully in control, and he uses his control to arrive not in an ornate carriage like the one we saw at the royal wedding, not with an armed escort, not even on a majestic war horse. No, this king who is in control arrives on a spindly-legged colt of a donkey. And it's a borrowed spindly-legged colt of a donkey. Jesus is the king who chooses to humble himself. That's the message. Soon, very soon, he will endure mocking, beating, spitting, flogging, and much, much worse. But before that all happens, we're learning that Jesus is the king who chooses to submit himself to all these things. Around 30 years before this, he chose to leave heaven and be born in a baby's feeding trough. Now he's choosing to submit to a horrific death. It's so important that we're clear on this. This is the key to understanding the final chapters of Luke's gospel. It's the key to understanding the cross. Jesus is in control every step of the way. Every lash of the whip, every nail that goes into his body, he chose all of it. And when we realize that, it only shows us more of his majesty. This is the king who uses his power to die for his enemies. This is the king who comes to his throne through the path of humility. And here he is preparing us for all that. He displays total control of this situation. And he uses that control to choose for himself a donkey. This is our king. 
Back in the Old Testament, Zechariah prophesied about the king who would come. John read it for us earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Zechariah goes on to say that this powerful, humble king will disarm his enemies and rule the whole world. So don't get the wrong idea when you see pitiful images of Jesus hanging on a cross. On the cross, he was working to bring salvation. He was working to defeat his enemies. So Jesus has chosen some curious transport for himself. He's chosen to enter Jerusalem looking not very much like a king. But he is the king. And verses 35 to 40 tell us that however lowly he may look, Jesus the king will be praised. Look at verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Spreading cloaks on the road was a way to greet royalty. We find that in the Old Testament. And in this moment, despite the fact that he's riding on a donkey, despite the fact that he has no crown, no royal robes, this crowd cannot help but burst out in praise. Despite the humble picture, this crowd sees Jesus for who he really is. The praise sounds very like the praise the angels gave when Jesus was first born. Remember the angels sang to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest. That was a humble picture too. The angel had just told the shepherds the one they were all praising was a baby, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. But when the shepherds saw that baby in the feeding trough, we're told they went about glorifying and praising God. What's the point here? Surely the point is that when we see the majesty that lies behind Jesus' humility, then we cannot help but praise him. Many people look at Jesus, poor, weak, riding on a donkey, dying on a cross, and they turn away. It's all a bit pathetic. It's nothing to get excited about, nothing to admire or worship. But if only we'll stop and look closer we'll see the majesty that lies behind the pathetic picture. We'll see that he chose to be weak and pathetic. And his choice led to salvation for men and women from every nation, tribe, people, and language. His choice led to defeat for God's enemies. 
This humble man on a donkey, soon to be dying on a cross, is the King of Kings. He is worthy of praise. But the reality is, of course, that most of Jerusalem is not going to praise him. They're going to reject him as a blasphemer. And we have a foretaste of that even here already. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As far as these religious folk are concerned, this praise is inappropriate. This man on a donkey is not God's king. He ought to be honest enough to admit it and stop the show. But Jesus replies, if these people don't praise me, the rocks will. In other words, he's saying, praise belongs to me. It can't be stopped. If you don't bring me praise, some other part of my creation will. The irony here is that the rocks know more than the Pharisees do. The rocks know their maker when they see him. Jesus is teaching two things here. First of all, those who can't see Jesus' majesty are not smarter than all the rest. They're less perceptive than the rest. Less perceptive even than rocks. And second, Jesus is teaching that nothing can stop him receiving praise. We live in a time and place where he's generally either ignored or despised. But one day every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many people today won't look close enough to see his majesty. But one day his majesty will be unmissable. And he will be praised. Even those who hate him will fall down against their will and praise him. One of our songs says, One day every knee will confess you are God. One day, every, one day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. We will all bow and confess. We will all praise him. Better to praise him willingly now than unwillingly later. So if you don't know Jesus, ask God to help you see behind this humble picture. To see the majesty. Third, in verses 41 to 44, Jesus the king weeps over rebellion and its consequences. There are two opposite mistakes that we can make about Jesus. When we don't know much about him, we can have this idea in our minds that he's a pushover, that he's soft and weak, and he just wishes that everybody would be nice. Of course, when we start to actually pay attention to Jesus, to the things that he actually said and actually did, we discover that's a very wrong picture of Jesus. We discover that Jesus challenges people. 
He talks regularly about hell and about judgment. The danger then at this point is that we see him as harsh and uncaring. But neither of those pictures is accurate. These verses show us that the real Jesus was neither a weak pushover nor was he a harsh enforcer. Look again at verses 41 to 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the day of God's coming to you. Jesus is realistic about the judgment that's coming. But at the same time, he weeps over the judgment that's coming. He is not cold and indifferent. Commentators tell us that the word translated wept in verse 41 is a very strong word. It's referring to full sobbing or wailing. In other words, Jesus doesn't just have a watery eye as he stands here looking at Jerusalem. He is truly weeping. If we're going to understand Jesus, we have to include this in our picture of him. This is the king who sobs and wails over rebellion and its consequences. In the Old Testament, God the Father announced, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And here we see God the Son sharing his Father's attitude. We heard earlier that all things were created by him and for him. Of course Jesus will weep over the destruction of people created by him and for him. And in these verses, Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. What he describes here happened in the year A.D. 70. So about 37 years after Jesus was crucified. The Romans came and flattened Jerusalem, just as Jesus predicts here. But the key thing to notice is why the city was destroyed. Jesus says in verse 42, If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. He means peace with God. In other words, if only you had acknowledged your sin and the fact that your sin separates you from God. If only you had acknowledged your need for peace with God. Then you would have been ready to see that I am your way to peace with God. But, Jesus is saying, because you refuse to admit your sin, because you refuse to accept me as your savior from sin, you will receive terrible judgment. Then in verse 44, Jesus underlines the reason judgment is coming. It's because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Back in chapter 2, we were told that God was coming to visit his people. 
That visit was Jesus' life here on earth. We've just seen crowds welcoming Jesus as king. But these are the minority. Jesus knows that the majority of Israel rejects him. They don't recognize him for who he is. Despite all his teaching, despite all the signs of God's power at work through him, these people would rather cling to their, their pride and their sin. And the only possible outcome for that is destruction. God will bring judgment on those who reject Jesus. They will be held responsible for their pride and their rebellion. These people reject God's visit in Jesus. And so they will receive another visit. God's judgment will be carried out by the Romans. And this historical incident is a foreshadowing of the final judgment, the judgment that will come when Jesus returns to earth. Because in the book of Revelation, we find the same kind of description for what's going to happen at the end of history. Rebellion against God has inevitable, terrible consequences. One writer says, It is a fearful thing to be responsible before God for the rejection of Jesus. It costs to reject Jesus. So you and I might sail through this life with perfect health, with great success in our careers, great happiness in our family. But if we ignore Jesus, we've ignored our only way to peace with God. If we accept Jesus as a good man, but not as our king, the one who owns our life, then we're still in rebellion against him. And one day we will face the consequences of that rebellion. Jesus himself and the rest of the New Testament leaves us in no doubt about that. But we must never imagine that Jesus or his Father delight in destruction. Together they say to a lost world and to you if you're not a follower of Jesus, we take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. Those are God's words from the book of Ezekiel. Jesus the King weeps over rebellion and its consequences. Fourth, Jesus the King works for his Father's honor. Jesus completes his one-mile donkey ride to the center of Jerusalem. And then we read in verse 45, Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. The other gospel writers give us more detail here. Mark tells us he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Jesus walks into the temple and goes on a rampage. 
And I say that with no intention of being flippant. We mustn't try to tone down what Jesus does here. We have to include this in our picture of Jesus the King. He's willing to turn over tables and shove people around. So how does this fit with the sobbing, wailing king we just saw a few verses ago? The king who wept over rebels is now angry at rebels. How do we explain what we see here? The contrast between the Jesus looking at Jerusalem and the Jesus in Jerusalem. The answer is there is something Jesus cares about more than he cares about lost rebels. He cares more about his father's honor. To put it another way, there's something Jesus cares about more than your happiness and salvation, or my happiness and salvation. His greatest concern is to see his father given the honor that's due to him. That's why the king who weeps over rebels also brings judgment on rebels. You and I are not the center of Jesus' world. His Father is. You and I do not have first place in Jesus' heart. His Father does. Jesus is not going to the cross first and foremost to bring salvation to lost men and women. He's going to the cross because he delights to do his Father's will. And it is his Father's will to forgive and save lost men and women. The only way that forgiveness and salvation can happen is for God the Son to die in the place of lost men and women. And so, Jesus is going to the cross. In all things, Jesus works for his Father's honor. We'll never truly make sense of Jesus, we'll never truly know him, unless we see that he doesn't exist to make us happy. He exists to bring honor to his Father. That's why Jesus can weep over lost rebels and then proceed to turn his anger on lost rebels. That's why one day Jesus will return to bring eternal destruction to God's enemies. As much as he loves us, he loves his Father more. In this situation in front of us, Jesus shows his love for his father by reclaiming his father's house, the temple. That's essentially what he's doing. In verse 46, he's quoting his father's words from the Old Testament books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The temple was supposed to be a, meet, a place for meeting God and worshiping God. It's become a place for making money. So once Jesus kicks out the traitors, he works to restore the temple to what God intended. Verse 47 says, every day he was teaching at the temple. Jesus puts the focus back where it should be, on his Father and his Father's will. And this reminds us of an earlier visit Jesus made to the temple. We were told in chapter 2 that when he was 12 years old, 
He traveled to Jerusalem with his parents, and then he stayed in Jerusalem after his parents had gone home. When they finally found him three days later, he was in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. We're told when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? It has always been Jesus' aim to work for his father's honor. It always will be. He delights in his father even more than he delights in his people. And we can be thankful that Jesus loves his father more than us. That's what qualifies him to be our savior. Only a perfect sacrifice would do. A sinless sacrifice. And only Jesus loves his father with all his heart and soul and strength and mind. That's the kind of love God the Father is worthy of. And only Jesus loves him with such all-encompassing love. We should never begrudge the fact that our King loves his Father most of all. That's what qualifies him to be our Savior. And when he becomes our Savior, he leads us away from our self-centered approach to God. We all have a built-in tendency to be self-centered, even in our worship. We all have a tendency to rob God, just like these merchants who took over the temple. Whatever we might say, it's so easy for us to come here and spend the whole time focusing on ourselves, isn't it? Am I getting a blessing out of this today? Is this what I like today? Is this sermon going to solve my immediate problem or concern today? When our worship has that kind of self-focus, aren't we turning this gathering into a den of robbers? A place where God is robbed of his central place? So next time you sit disgruntled or fuming in a worship service because you feel you've been slighted somehow or your wishes haven't been catered to? Stop and ask yourself, am I robbing God in this moment? This is supposed to be all about him, not me. The more we get to know Jesus, the more we will leave that behind the more we'll be freed from our obsession with ourselves. We'll begin to share Jesus' focus on his Father's honor. And our first question will no longer be, am I getting a blessing out of this? Instead, we'll say to ourselves, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. The more we know the king, the more we will become like the king. We will follow him in his love for his father's honor.
what Jesus has just done here at the temple would almost certainly have been considered blasphemous. So it's not surprising that we read then in the second half of verse 47, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Jesus the King causes division. People react to him in two very different ways. Some are hanging on his words. Some want to kill him. And this division over Jesus is not a one-off thing. It's a pattern. It was foretold at Jesus' birth. When Simeon held the baby Jesus in his arms in this same temple, he told Jesus' mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. In chapter 12, Jesus himself said, Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus divides the world in two. And you might think, well, surely there are more than two ways of responding to Jesus. You might say, I'm not exactly hanging on his words. I'm not falling at his feet in worship but I'm not trying to kill him either. I'm in a neutral position with regard to Jesus. According to the Bible, there is no neutral position on Jesus. The Bible proclaims Jesus to be God's anointed king. So we might be the least aggressive person on the planet, but if we won't accept Jesus as king, if we won't say to him, my life is yours, then we're denying him his rightful place. That's rebellion. We might be quiet rebels. We might even be regular church attending rebels. But we're rebels all the same. In Jesus' own words, if we won't accept him as king, we're not recognizing that God has come to us. God has offered us peace. But we have turned away. Can't you see how crucial this is? There are only two ways to live. We're either with the king or we're against him. We're either servants of the king or we're with the Pharisees. We're with those earlier in chapter 18 who said, we don't want this man to be our king. We've been given a picture of Jesus this morning. A picture of the king. Our passage tells us this king will be praised. It is God the Father's will that his anointed king receives praise. We've been told that if need be, the rocks will cry out in praise. We have a CD at home of a children's gospel choir. One of the songs says, Ain't no rock gonna cry in my place. As long as I'm alive, I'll glorify his holy name. If you agree with that, 
and join with me as we sing together, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let's stand as we sing this. Sixty-nine is to seventy. So if you're still with me, we've said there's general agreement that the seventy-sevens is not meant to be a literal number of weeks or years. It's a way of talking about the whole of the rest of history. The rebuilding of the temple that has filled Daniel's horizon takes up the equivalent of one of those sevens. Then the Messiah will come after another 62 sevens. His arrival is close to the climax of God's plans. There's only one seven left 